Welcome to Men's Alliance Ambassador Training, designed to give us the information and the tactics so that we can better represent Christ to our family and friends. Hey guys, Dave Mills here with the Ambassador Training Podcast. Um, you know, in the past several weeks, we've talked about evidence for God, and we use DNA. And then we use the moral argument, right? The existence of evil. The fact that you can know what is evil uh, points to an objective standard for good. And that points to some transcendent standard that is universal. And that points to a creator God. Um, so we've used the moral argument. We've used uh, the teleological argument in the form of DNA and that gets us to theism. Okay. We're talking about evidence for God. That just gets us to theism. And that's an important big step, but it's not the final step, right? So theism gets you to um, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, right? Those are the three big monotheistic uh, religions in the world. So we've gotten ourselves to theism. We've discussed evidence. We can converse intelligently and articulately to uh, represent as ambassadors God. Now I want to move us into specifically Christianity, the next step, right? So we started off here. Step one was truth, right? That was ambassador training. Uh, number one was truth exists. And then we've gotten into what Christians believe to make sure we're tracking in the right direction. Then we've got the evidence for God. Next logical step is evidence for Christianity is where we're going to go today. So first thing, like before um, I get into the evidence for Christianity being true, um, which we're going to, we're going to get in full effect today. I want to first talk about kind of the wrong answer, right? Kind of like before we give the right answer, let's talk about what's the wrong answer. And so I think it's very important as ambassadors, we understand that while there's nothing wrong with feeling in your heart, right? Feeling that Christianity is true or sensing that there is a God. And I firmly believe that the Holy Spirit guides us and nudges us. And that sometimes we are given divine inspiration that leads us to truth, right? However, I don't think that these feelings help out anyone who didn't feel them personally, right? So they're, they're, they're wonderful, um, personal affirmations inside of the individual for whom they occur, but they do not explain well. They don't tell well, they are not a good apologetic, um, for a couple reasons, right? I believe they're intended only for the recipient, the recipient, right? They don't make a compelling case for Christ to borrow from Mr. Strobel. Um, plus if we open up the floodgates of our feelings, well, then we're going to, you know, not like where that leads. So when it comes to first Peter three fifteen and being able to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, we need to have something more than just a story about, um, our feelings an experience we had at summer camp, the feeling that we got after a near death experience, etc. Listen, Mormons are notorious. This is uh, Latter-day Saints. 
Mormons, LDS, they're notorious for claiming that they have a, quote, burning in their bosom. Like they've all literally been taught to use that phrase. Oh, I know that my way is correct because I have this burning in my bosom, right? They, they, you can't refute it when someone says they have a feeling, right? Muslims, they have a feeling that they're right. Mormons have a feeling that they're right. Everyone has a feeling that they're right. Um, atheists have a feeling that they're right. Um, so does every other worldview. If people didn't feel like they were right, then they would change their mind. And then they would feel like they were right, right? So we can't just go to bat um, in a conversation about our feelings. We have to have evidence. So while I'm not discounting them, I'm just saying they don't uh, help us build our case. And think of it this way. If you're having a conversation with somebody, let's say a, um, a Muslim is trying to convert you to Islam. And they tell you that they know Islam is true because of an experience that they had and a feeling that they have and how Allah answered their prayers. And they tell you some story about, you know, their grandmother having cancer and then they prayed to Allah and then their grandmother didn't have cancer. Um, or they prayed that Allah would give them a vision if he was real and true. And they, they, they prayed that and then they, they got a vision. And so they, they know, right. If they, if somebody's trying to convert you with any of these types of things, you're going to be thinking this, you're going to be thinking, well, then why didn't he give me one? Oh, well, that's so great that, that the, the creator of the universe gave you a personal vision um, to prove his existence to you. Uh, gee, I wonder why I haven't gotten one. I wonder why this God of the universe hasn't given me the same thing he's given you. So you, you've entered inadvertently into um, kind of like a, I've got something special that you don't favoritism um, kind of, I mean, if, if somebody was trying to convert me with that approach um, it wouldn't work and it would leave me feeling a little bit annoyed. So anyway, that's my pitch about why we need to offer more than feelings. Okay. Um, so let's get into to, to some of the evidence for Christianity that is not, uh, you know, exclusive to one person having a feeling, right? This is accessible to everybody. This is not like something unique that only happened to you and didn't happen to your neighbor. This is something that is a historical event, accessible and readily available for anyone to discover and find if they study it, that's what's great about this. So what I'm going to use here today is called the minimal facts argument. And it's really attributed to Dr. Gary Habermas. He is um, the world's foremost scholar on the resurrection. Um, he's a professor at Liberty University right down the road from us here in uh, Virginia. So he has really... Um, really pioneered the minimal facts argument. You'll also hear William Lane Craig use the minimal facts argument and their minimal facts differ slightly. And if you take the resurrection course by Habermas, you'll, you'll get to know like his criteria and the percentage of atheist scholars that must agree for a fact to be included on the list. So it gets very scientific. And while 
one or two of the details can uh, can can be viewed differently, and I'll give you seven. We'll go over the five minimal facts, and I think this is a powerful argument. This is a powerful argument for Christianity being true, and it, it has to do with this. There are we're gonna we're gonna say five, but there's really seven. So I'll give you five, and then I'll give you two bonus ones. There are five facts that non-biblical historical sources all agree upon. That's why these are called facts, because um, atheist scholars and professors agree with these. This is not something that Christians believe because they learned it in the Bible at Sunday school. These are historically verifiable facts that even skeptics and atheists agree with. Okay, let me just give them to you real quick, and then we'll just uh, run run through them in detail later. Number one, Jesus of Nazareth died by Roman crucifixion. Okay, there is a preponderance of historical evidence for, for these facts that you do not need the Bible to get to. I'm just saying that over and over. I'm foot stomping this, right? Um, if you want to write some of these down, um, there is Suetonius, there's Tacitus, there's Pliny the Younger, and Josephus. Those are all uh, first century historians and scholars, statesmen, who have recorded facts about what was going on during their um, during their life, during their century in and around uh, the area of Israel. So fact number one, Jesus of Nazareth died by Roman crucifixion. Number two, he was buried in a private tomb. Number three, his tomb was found empty soon after his interment. Number four, the disciples of Jesus had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. So it is, it is an undisputed fact uh, verified in historical documents outside of the Bible that the followers of Jesus believed that they had these experiences. So it's, notice I'm not saying that it's a fact that they saw the risen Jesus. I'm saying it's a fact that they believed they saw the risen Jesus. And then five, the, the fifth of the, the minimal facts is due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed, even being willing to die for it. Okay, so those are five minimal facts that even skeptics and atheist historians and scholars agree upon. That Jesus of Nazareth died by Roman crucifixion, that he was buried in a private tomb, his tomb was soon after found to be empty, that his disciples believed they had seen him risen, and number five, that due to their experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed. Um even being willing to die for it. So we gather all of this information. If you never had a Bible, you could gather these facts from Tacitus, Suetonius, Pliny, Josephus, 
those are the main ones. There are a few others, but those are the main first century Jewish and Roman uh, <clears throat> historians and writers who recorded histories in their letters and their books um, that we can glean at least those five minimal facts from. Uh, now, I said I'd give you two bonus ones. Here, here are the number six. Your bonus is that um, first century skeptics, James, the half-brother of Jesus, and Saul of Tarsus, also called Paul, those two men were converted and became church planters who were killed for their claims to have seen the risen Jesus. So first century skeptics, James and Paul, were became converted church planters during the first century. So that's just a fact that those two men uh, did radical 180s during the first century, and they went from skeptics, even persecutors of Christians, right? Saul was out killing Christians, trying to stop the movement, and then he became the um, the foremost church planner and author of New Testament letters, right? St. Paul's Cathedral is named after a guy who started off killing Christians. So that's fact number six. And then bonus fact number seven is the explosive growth of the Christian church into the most global, most multicultural movement that the world has ever seen despite the notoriously unpopular message of giving your money to the poor, sexual abstinence, and promised persecution, unlike other religions that have historically promised multiple wives and the spoils of war. Okay? So those are two bonuses, right? The explosive growth of the Christian church during the first and second centuries and the radical 180s of James and Paul. Okay, so let's look at just those first five. Here is the question that I want you to consider that you should ask a person um, who is skeptical. What is the best explanation for these five pieces of historical evidence? What is the best explanation for these five pieces of historical evidence or these seven pieces do you have a better explanation for these five historical facts other than Christianity being true because the resurrection actually occurred? So if someone has a better explanation, I would love to hear it. I really would. Because what we have to do is we have to be willing to follow the evidence wherever it leads. So if a person looks at the evidence, the, the seven facts that I just gave you, widely agreed upon by the preponderance of all scholars, skeptic, atheist, or Christian, historically documented from sources outside the Bible. Do you have a better explanation for these historical facts other than the resurrection of Jesus? If so, I would love to hear it. But here's the thing. Here's what you will find is a piecemeal list of conspiracy theories that have no motives, no witnesses, no recorded accounts, and no evidence. Therefore, I would conclude, and have personally concluded myself, that Christianity is the best explanation for the evidence. So, 
the only way a person looks at this evidence and doesn't reach the conclusion of Christianity being true is if they go into it with a preconceived bias against anything supernatural occurring. Okay, that's the key. Um, if you are going to just out of hand dismiss the possibility of any supernatural occurrence ever occurring, then you're going into it narrow-minded and you're not willing to follow the evidence truly to wherever it might lead. Because what if it leads to a resurrection? That's a supernatural event. Are you willing to get outside of your naturalistic worldview in order to follow the evidence where it leads? If not, then you're not as open-minded as a Christian. So we all have worldviews, right? And some people we talked about in ambassador training number one, they hold to this thought of materialism or scientism that says, you know, there is no supernatural. All that exists is molecules. Um, and there, there's nothing that exists outside of the natural world. Well, if that's your worldview, then you will never be able to explain things that are supernatural outside of nature, right? And by the way, science can only study natural, the natural world. So the supernatural, of course, it can't be proven by science. It's outside the realm of science. So you have to enter this with a, um, an open mind to follow the evidence wherever it leads. You know, Jay Warner Wallace in his book, Cold Case Christianity, makes a great example of this point by saying, imagine a homicide detective that shows up at a crime scene, but before he gets there or looks at any of the evidence, he has already decided in his mind that people over six foot five do not exist. And so therefore, in his worldview, he has already dismissed the possibility that the suspect could be over six foot five, right? You can see how that person would not be as good of a detective willing to follow evidence to wherever it leads as would a detective who is totally open-minded to the existence of taller people or shorter people and who is totally willing to follow evidence wherever it leads. That will clearly be the better detective. And I think that explains well the situation with Christians examining the evidence for the resurrection versus materialistic skeptics who may not be willing to truly follow the evidence where it leads. If it leads to somewhere that is supernatural and they have dismissed a priori the possibility of something supernatural occurring, well, then they are not as open-minded. They are not as good of a detective. They are not following the evidence where it leads. So when we look at these minimal facts, Jesus of Nazareth died by Roman crucifixion. It was buried in a private tomb. The tomb was found empty. His disciples all had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of him risen. And due to those experiences, their lives were thoroughly transformed. They were willing to die for it. The skeptics, James and Paul, who were persecuting Christians, in the case of Paul, converted, did a 180, and became church planners who were then killed for their claims to have seen the risen Jesus. And the explosive growth of Christianity into the most global, most multicultural movement the world has ever seen, despite 
a notoriously unpopular message of giving your money to the poor, sexual abstinence, and promised persecution? Unlike other religions that have historically promised multiple wives and the spoils of war, how do you explain these seven facts that are agreed upon by non-biblical, non-Christian sources? What explanation do you have that is better than the resurrection of Jesus? That is the million-dollar question. How do you follow this evidence? Where does it lead you? So, here are some of the common um, explanations that that evidence will lead to for skeptics and atheists. Remember how I said it will lead to a uh, piecemeal list of conspiracy theories? Well, they might say, maybe the disciples stole his body. Okay, let's think about that. What was their motive? What did they gain from that? They gained nothing and they lost everything, right? They all had careers. They were all comfortably practicing Jews with families and careers. And they gave all that up in order to be tortured and executed. So there's no motive. What is the evidence for that? What's the evidence? Mm, there's no evidence. There's no early eyewitness recorded and preserved written accounts by multiple sources. Hmm. Well, there is for the resurrection. So there's another one. If they don't have evidence. They don't have motive. Um, what would be the reason? What would be the logic? What would be the why? Um, who did it? Um, you know, they can't answer any question. So it's just nothing but a piecemeal theory. Oh, maybe the um, Jewish leaders stole the body. Okay, again, why? What on earth motive would they have? Um, what is the evidence? Any early written, preserved eyewitness accounts of this happening from multiple sources? Again, no. So if these things would have happened, by the way, um, let's say, you know, the Jewish leaders stole the body. Well, as soon as the uh, disciples start claiming to have seen a resurrection, they would have produced the body, right? Um, let's say one theory is that um, the women on Easter morning, the women and then the disciples, they all went to the wrong tomb. That's a theory for you. They all went to the wrong tomb. Okay, well, as soon as they start creating a movement and claiming a resurrection, again, the Jewish leaders would have just been able to show everyone the correct tomb. Again, they could have produced the body. And again, there's zero evidence, zero account, zero motive for that happening. Okay, what's another theory? Well, the Muslims have a theory. They say maybe Jesus didn't really die. They call it, they call it the swoon theory. Maybe he just kind of passed out. He just kind of he just kind of got beaten and flogged and stabbed in the side with a spear and nailed to a cross and left there hanging until the Romans thought he was dead and then wrapped up in burial cloths, buried and sealed in a tomb, but he wasn't really dead. He was just kind of passed out. Well, that's an interesting theory. Um, what evidence do you have for that theory? Again, do you have any written, preserved 
eyewitness accounts from multiple sources? Mm, again, no. Okay. Um, plus, um, just so um, unprobable, implausible, um, you know, there's no written historical accounts of anyone surviving a crucifixion. Um, and you could imagine that if someone did, they would certainly not be in a condition that warranted worshiping them. They would be in a state, a condition that would warrant pitying them and taking mercy on them and helping them. Right. So, I mean, it's such a bizarre theory. It just is silly, not to mention it has no evidence for it. But it doesn't even make sense, much less timeline-wise. This theory from Islam comes about 600 years late. So um, if you're given the choices between two theories, one um, happened, um, you know, the resurrection, that's one theory. Um, this started in the first century by eyewitnesses, and there's written, recorded historical accounts of it. Or one that came about 600 years later, no eyewitnesses um, and no testimonial historical accounts of it occurring. Which one are you going to go for? Like the fact that any Muslim is believing the swoon theory is um, just really poor, his, just really poor um, historiography, right? There, there's just, that's just not how you do history. Um you know, if somebody writes about George Washington, who knew him and surveyed land with him and served in battle with him, and then 200 years later, someone else writes a vastly different theory about the life of George Washington, and they never knew him, never knew anyone who knew him, and have no um, primary first uh, generation eyewitness documents that they are even using, why on earth would you believe anything that they have to say? Of course, we're going to go with the early eyewitness account of the life of any historical figure, right? So those are some of the theories, swoon theory, disciples stole his body, uh, Jewish leaders stole his body, they went to the wrong tomb. Um, you know, all of these are conspiracy theories. So I'd like to offer you this thought here. Um, <clears throat> one of the main reasons I'm a Christian is for really the same reason that I believe we landed on the moon. And that is this, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Okay. So, um, to not believe in the resurrection, to not be a Christian is to be a conspiracy theorist. Because you have to believe one of those conspiracies, conspiracies that I just listed, right? Those are all conspiracy theories with no evidence, no motives, and no witnesses. Um, and you have to believe in one of those or another one that we've never heard of. You have to come up with a conspiracy theory in order to not believe in the resurrection, which has the preponderance of the evidence that I already went over, the seven minimal facts that everyone agrees on. So the question is not whether or not these are the facts that are agreed on. The question is when you follow this evidence, where does it lead you? And I'm 
putting forward the fact that to not be a Christian requires you to be a conspiracy theorist. So if you believe that the disciples stole the body or something else that is totally undocumented with no motives and no evidence, then maybe you also believe we faked the moon landing, right? Because there's also no evidence for that and no motive for that. And people would tend to risk losing more than they risk gaining, right? The, the disciples gained nothing uh, by claiming to have seen Jesus resurrected. They all died horrible deaths. Um, just like if you faked the moon landing, you're risking total loss of global status as a superpower, right? The U.S. has a lot to lose by faking a moon landing. Uh, so there's no motive. Why would we fake a moon landing? That's a bizarre conspiracy theory that only somebody, um, you know, really on the fringe, the fringes of, you know, mental health would even believe. But that's the kind of people that believe conspiracy theories, right? Uh, if you believe um, a conspiracy theory about the Illuminati or that 9-11 was staged or that, you know, Elvis didn't die and we faked the moon landing, well, then you might be the type of person that also does not believe in the resurrection because it requires you to believe in a conspiracy theory. So I wanted to give you guys that minimal facts argument, be open-minded, be willing to follow the evidence where it leads. And I am 100% certain it will lead you to Christianity being true because the resurrection occurred. Thanks for listening to Men's Alliance Ambassador Training, where our goal is to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that we have, but to do this with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3.15